Once again, if you have joined us in the midst of our service here at Cornerstone, we want to extend warm uh, greetings and welcomes to you. Uh, we are grateful you're here, especially those who may be visiting us from New College Franklin this day, those of you who may be prospective students or families, we especially greet you, grateful to have you in our presence this morning. Also, those of you joining us via live stream, we are so thankful to have you in our midst and also those of you today who may have registered even for this service but find yourself not able to get out of your neighborhood because of the rising waters. I hope that your property and your property, if you're here, is intact uh, this day. We will certainly be in touch checking on you, uh, the congregation, in the days ahead as we continue uh, to walk through what was an incredible uh, season of rain yesterday. And I pray, I haven't looked ahead, I don't know what today holds, we'll trust the Lord, the Lord of the storm. We're going to trust the Lord of the storm as we move through uh, the rest of this day. But it is good to be in our series that we have been in for a number of months now through the Gospel of Mark. We actually are in Mark 8 uh, this morning in this series entitled, uh, Follow Me. Three stories that Mark gives us, a miracle of the Lord Jesus Christ, an engagement with the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and then also a boat ride with the disciples. These first 21 verses in Mark chapter 8 held together thematically uh, around the imagery, the metaphor of sign and seeing. And so as we look at Mark chapter 8 together, you might keep in mind the language of sign or uh, the symbol or able to see that which the Lord Jesus has done. And I think that you'll see both the Pharisees and the disciples have a hard time seeing. And it teaches us about what it means for us to have faith, the eyes of faith and the signs that God gives us if we have the eyes to see it. Let's look together. Mark chapter 8 beginning in verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he, that's Jesus, called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them... He said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied and took up the broken pieces left over seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat and his disciples with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanthua. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. 
Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, having heard now this word in the presence of your people, we would ask for your Holy Spirit to come as we attend to this word, that he might portion this truthful word from you into the hearts of all of us by grace, that we might indeed encounter Christ through the Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am truly grateful and thankful that you made it safely to uh, worship this morning as I was traveling in. It was still dark. I get here pretty early on Sunday morning, and as I was coming in, there were orange barrels in some of the side streets that were saying, don't come this way. There's water on these roads. If you can see the sign, it's really helpful to know where to travel, how to go. But a sign is only important enough and helpful to the person who sees it and who understands it. This text is like that. Uh, pictures and signs being spoken, being, being shared, being performed, even the miracle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are the Pharisees and the disciples, both of which simply do not see, either because there is a profound spiritual darkness in the case of the Pharisees or a dullish spiritual perception in the case of the disciples. But nevertheless, in both cases, they are confused by Jesus. How are we to understand his signs? How might we actually see by faith? I want to look at this text with you in four ways this morning. And I want to start with this one called the sign. I want you to see the sign in the text. Now, some of you, as I read Mark 8 just a minute ago, may have said to yourself, I, I don't know if I should stop, Nate, but... I think that we actually have already treated this passage before. Maybe he had a long week and he didn't have time to prepare a sermon. And so he's going back to some old material. He thinks he's going to pull over the wall over my eyes and think that I don't remember the text that he works through. And so some of you are like, Nate, I'm sorry to tell you, we've already, we've already done this miracle. Well, if that was you, you're wrong. In Mark chapter 6, we have the feeding of the 5,000, just two chapters earlier in Mark. But it's so similar to what we read here in Mark chapter 8. It would be understandable if you thought that I was trying to double dip into a sermon in the past. 
Now, some scholars, as they see this in Mark chapter 8 and, and how it resembles so, so similarly what happened in Mark chapter 6, actually argue that Mark here is just recapitulating that story, that he's conflating the two, and maybe for his own literary or spiritual reasons, he's retelling that story at this point, or maybe he's so dense that he doesn't know he's already told it just two chapters earlier. But we're in a desolate place, just as we were in Mark 6. There's a little bit of bread, just as it was in Mark 6. Jesus actually walks through the same pattern. He takes the bread, he gives thanks for it, he, he breaks it, he gives it to his disciples, and it multiplies. It's essentially the same uh, miracle. Those same scholars, I must admit that most of them are modern, as they look at this text, will also say the, the, the sort of case closed that this is a repeat of the old miracle that he had already presented is there in verse 4. I mean, listen to the disciples' statement. How can one feed these people here with bread in this desolate place? Well, now, these were the same disciples who were there when he had fed the 5,000 in the chapters previously. There's no way that these disciples wouldn't remember what he had done previously. It is just, as one commentator said, psychologically implausible that the disciples would raise such a question, having totally forgotten this incredible miracle that he had done just days earlier. And my response to those modern scholars are, have you been paying attention to the disciples? I mean, these men look like they fell off the turnip truck yesterday. They forget everything that Jesus teaches them um, all of the time. They misunderstand him, even they misunderstand him in this, own, in this very text, which is part of the point. It doesn't seem far-fetched to me as a human being who also is a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ that I too occasionally forget the great things that the Lord has done in my life. Oh, how many of you have had an amazing showing of the Spirit where the Lord has, has provided for you in some profound way? It's unmistakable, the fingerprints of the Father uh, being impressed upon your life. And you say to yourself, I will never forget this until tomorrow. And you do. Or that you remember that miracle that the Lord had done, that amazing work, and then you find yourself in a similar predicament and you go, yeah, he's not going to come through this time. I don't know why it seems to the modern scholars that it wouldn't be in keeping with the spirit of the disciples to fall back into that pattern, but it seems quite clear as we take the scripture at face value, and it's the truth of the word of God, which it is, that Jesus himself closes the case on whether this is a recapitulation of that story or not by referencing, as he does in verses 19 to 21, both feedings. Did you catch that? When he goes over with those probing questions to the disciples at the end of this, of this text, he says to them, how many was it that we fed and how many baskets were left over? Twelve. And how many was fed and how much was left over? Seven. Jesus references both feedings in Mark's account. And I tell you what, I'm going to go with Jesus. I'm going to go that this is actually an additional miracle. And, and I think there's multiple reasons why. Mark is actually up to something. And I want to state it very simply, and then I want to unpack it with three brief points. Why two feeding miracles? Why two feeding miracles that are pretty much identical in many, many ways? And the teaching is very similar. Well, why two feeding miracles? Very simply, here's the answer. Because it's needed. <laughs> because it's needed. And here are my three points. It's needed first 
practically. Here is another crowd, a different crowd from the one previous, and they have been sitting at Jesus' feet listening to his teaching for three days, and they have not had a bite to eat. And we're told that Jesus, in his compassion, wants to provide for them a meal. He can't send them away. Some of them have a long way to travel. They would faint on the way. Practically speaking, this is an act of mercy and of care and compassion from the Lord. Practically, it's needed. But not just that. Secondly, it's needed spiritually. It's needed spiritually. Mark doesn't use this language, but John does for this same miracle. He calls it a sign. A sign. It's a sign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And a sign points to something, right? It tells you where to go. As the direction signs on the interstate might say, take this exit if this is the place that you are headed to. And it points you in that direction. The sign is not about the sign. The sign is about something else. It's pointing to something. And Jesus, in this context, spiritually, is reminding his disciples, and now this whole new crowd that has not yet spent time with him with regards to this lesson, is, he is telling to them that he is indeed the bread of life. He is reminding them by the meal that he has provided to them that he is the true bread, as John 6 would write, that has come down out of heaven from the Father. To feed, to care for, to bring us to satisfaction, those who are hungry. Not just physically, but spiritually. In fact, Jesus is the point of this miracle. But thirdly, there's something else going on here. Practically, spiritually, thirdly, this story is needed redemptively, historically. Okay, now why do I say that? That sounds awfully fancy, redemptively, historically. What does that mean? Well, it simply means, and as we believe here at Cornerstone, that the Lord has been saying the same thing to us graciously from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end of the Bible. And there's an unfolding through covenant promises, through signs and seals and through imagery and through, through temple practices and all of the else that's pulling us towards a beautiful picture of who Jesus is and his mission. We believe that very strongly here. In this passage, we're seeing an unfolding of Jesus' mission. In the previous feeding, where was Jesus? He was in Israel. He was with a Jewish audience only. People who had grown up under the covenant promises. A kosher people who ate the right things and went to the temple and did their sacrifices. Who knew the Old Testament. And actually when John unpacks that particular miracle, it's clear that they connect it to what happened in the Old Testament with Moses who was leading the people of Israel in the wilderness, in a desolate place, and manna from heaven came down, that this Jesus is like a new one to Moses, a redemptive historical picture. But now where is Jesus? He's in the Decapolis. You know where that is? This is Gentile territory. This is Middle Tennessee territory. These are non-Jew types. These are the Gentiles who have not yet and are strangers to the covenant promises alienated from that commonwealth of Israel. He has now come to them to tell them that this bread of life that has come down from heaven is not just for the Jews, but it is for the Gentiles too. It is for you Middle Tennessee folk who are far away, kindred tribes, tongues, and nations. That Jesus has come not just for the Jews, 
He has come for the Gentiles. This miracle is important because it shows us the mission, the broadness of the mission of Jesus, that it encompasses the entirety of the world. Now, this is the sign. These are some reasons why it's given and it's multiplied in the story of the Gospel of Mark, why we see it twice, a feeding miracle. But now I want you to see, secondly, a bad sign. There's a bad sign on the horizon. Now, what do I mean by bad sign? Well, we will sometimes use that language colloquially, won't we? Well, l- let me explain how we use that language. Uh, yesterday, I, was, I had the privilege of doing a wedding. Uh, it was the, you know, the wedding of, of all weddings. It was the dreamboat wedding. It just had everything. You know, the colors, the flowers, um, the bride was stunning. It was, it was absolutely glorious. The things of Bride Magazine. That, that's what this was as we were in this wedding yesterday. And, and everything was perfect about it except for this. It was outside. <laughs> Word to you young lovers in here. Inside weddings are less complicated. Um, it was outside. They, they actually had to pivot, as you might imagine, in that afternoon and to say, we've got to find a place to go inside. And there's a house. They went in inside and they moved everything out. But maybe you'll remember about 5 o'clock yesterday, that moment it stopped raining. It was just a moment. Um, it stopped raining at 5 o'clock. And it actually kind of cleared a little bit, like a little light on the horizon. And, and so the bride decided, as the family decided, let, let's Okay, let's go back outside. Let, let's make this work outside. And so we, we move all of the white chairs out into the garden there at the Carton Plantation. And, and uh, you know, there I was, you know, carrying the chairs out. We're getting them ready, right? And, we're, and, and so it's beautiful, like it's cloudy, but there's light there. And, you know, she's stunning. It's awesome. I'm standing there with the nervous groom. The, the bridal procession is happening. And, and, and there she comes out from under the wisteria vines over there, right, with Dad. She's going to make her way. And as she like stops, there's this streak of lightning that shows up. I mean, it's like one of those brilliant streaks of lightning. And there's this clap of thunder that that happens off in the distance. And I'm standing there with my best smile on. And I'm thinking to myself, this is a bad sign. This is going to go south here in just a minute. Well, God was gracious. We got through the wedding. It was absolutely amazing. But that's how we use the language, right? This is a bad sign. This is an omen, right? Of sorts. I've totally lost you now. I'm trying to bring you down. In verses 11 through 13 in the text, we encounter this, this connection between Jesus and the Pharisees. And it really reveals the darkness of the Pharisee's heart. And when we see the Pharisee's heart, what we're seeing is a bad sign, an indicator of something deeply wrong in their soul. Notice the Pharisees are coming as they always do in verse 11. We're told to test the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice in particular what they ask for. They are seeking for him a sign from heaven. They're seeking a sign from heaven. Now, It's significant that they ask for a sign from heaven. Uh, It's important that we understand they're not just asking for another miracle. They're actually asking Jesus to authenticate or to reveal whose authority and power is he operating under. That's the question behind this request for a sign from heaven. So notice it's not just a sign. 
They want to know, is he from heaven? Because this has been the question of the Pharisees. Maybe you remember back in Mark chapter 3 what they said about Jesus. When he was casting out demons, the Pharisees said, Oh, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. The sourcing for what it is that he does is essentially black magic. He is operating under the auspices of Satan himself. When they say, give us a sign from heaven, this is a kind of prove us wrong request. Here's what we believe about you. Here's what we think about you. Prove us wrong. Prove us wrong. It's a test to see whether he will authenticate by giving them a sign from heaven. Now what's interesting is at this moment in the text, we now see for a second time in two chapters that Jesus... Mark tells us, size. In fact, notice Mark's language there at verse 12. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. The, the, the Pharisees come, they come to test him, and they say, give us a sign from heaven. And Jesus goes, Phew. now listen, we know what this means, right? I mean, if, if after church I pull you aside and I say, listen, my car won't start. I really need some help. Can, can you help me? And you, and you look at me and you go, <sighs> I know exactly what that means. It means that I've put you off. I've frustrated you. I've wearied you. I've exasperated you by, by this request. That's Jesus here. He's wearied by these, these Pharisees who come testing him, always on the offensive, making allegations, questioning, seeking to trap him. And also behind that weariness is an anguish and a frustration. Now, why do I say that? Well, look at verse 12. Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. I'd like to suggest he's exasperated, frustrated in the most holy way. And what he sees rising up, the bad sign of what's happening in the hearts of these Pharisees. You see, there's something of an irony here that must have not been lost on Jesus. He has just fed 4,000 people. And the very next story is they ask him for a sign from heaven. He has just given them a sign from heaven. Those who have eyes to see, see the sign and understand what's happening. These Pharisees are so blinded by their hardened unbelief, by their hostility and resistance to Jesus, that even when a sign from heaven is staring them in the face, they can't see it and ask for another. Let me put it this way. It's a bad sign to ask for a sign when the sign of God's presence and power is right before you and you can't see it. That's a very bad sign. There's a spiritual darkness that's in this text. Let me ask you, would a sign from heaven have persuaded these Pharisees? <laughs> not in a million years. This is not the, the, the skeptic who is an open inquirer about the truth of Jesus. This is a cynic who's come with a defeatist mentality, resistant and hostile having nothing to do, seeking to destroy the one in whom he approaches. Completely different spirit. 
Which is why Sinclair Ferguson says that here Jesus decides not to indulge them, but to instead leave them to remain in their blindness. Isn't that the picture here in the text? Verse 13, we're told that Jesus left them and got in the boat and as if it wasn't clear enough, went to the other side of the sea. This is a rejection of Jesus, of the religious leaders. This is a clear uh, kind of judgment being displayed by Jesus' movement of his own bodily presence. He knows that a sign won't help the person who doesn't have eyes to see it. And then Mark tells us that this bad sign of the Pharisees actually gives way to a kind of blindness that's even among those who are closest to Jesus. Maybe that's the category you would put yourself in, a close follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says there's a kind of blindness that actually can be seen in the disciples, different from the Pharisees, but a blindness nonetheless. And this leads us to our third point, a sign, a bad sign. Now I want you to see a missed sign, a missed sign. Here's Jesus going to the other side now. And as they're sailing across, Mark kind of whispers in our ear. Do you, do you notice this? He wants to let us in on something. He says, hey, um, by the way, they forgot all the bread. And there's only one loaf on the boat. All right, let's go back to the story. That's sort of what Mark does. He kind of interjects right at the beginning of this section there in verse 14. And then we have... This, this moment, this moment with the disciples that we learn that at some point along the way, you know, Peter got hungry and said something about the pieces of the bread from uh, the feeding of the 4,000 and they begin to look around and they realize that they had left it all behind and they begin discussing the fact that they have left the bread behind and Jesus noticed, completely occupied with what took place with the Pharisees. He's not engaging in this, this banter among the disciples. He's still completely full of what's happened in his encounter with the Pharisees. And notice what he uh, says to them uh, in that moment. He says, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, as we read that, we think to ourselves, what in the world is he talking about here? The disciples are, are, are feeling like you and me when we've packed our lunch on Monday to go to work and we leave it on the kitchen counter and we find out about 11.30 or 12 when the hunger pains set in that it's there. And we just scrounge around in our, in our office in the drawers to try to find a Nature Valley granola bar to get by. That's where the disciples are. Jesus here is thinking through the spiritual implications of the conversation he had with the Pharisees. And he hears them talking about bread and he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, beware of the leaven of Herod. Now, some of you are saying, why Herod? Well, we won't go far down this path, but Herod in the narrative of Mark is one who also asks for a sign from Jesus. And so he's lumped in here in, in Mark's and Jesus' words. In this situation, I want you to know that Jesus here has nothing, he's saying nothing about physical bread, but he's speaking in metaphors. Common metaphor in the first century for Jews and Gentiles was the metaphor of leaven, and leaven was a symbol for sin or corruption. The leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod is this, this leaven, this yeast, this baking powder 
that gets into the dough and works its way all the way through is a bit like a father who might say to a child, now listen, if, if you make friends, so to speak, with an area of sin in your life, you think of it as a little area, will know that that little leaven, that little yeast, that little sin will seep through the hole of the dough and it has the ability to corrupt the entirety of the dough. In the context of this passage, unbelief. Having an area of your life where you keep away from and don't bring in submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. and You operate as if God doesn't matter in this particular area. Beware, disciples. Be warned. A little bit of that, tolerated, works its way through the whole of the bread. That's the lesson Jesus is teaching them. And of course, the disciples miss it. They hear Jesus say, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And he's, they go, great. Now he's upset at us that we have left the bread behind. See, I, John, I knew this was your fault. Uh, James, if you had not just gone out in so much haste, I knew it was back there. I thought Peter had gotten it. I knew I did. I knew, well, Peter never gets anything. You know? So that's the banter that's going on. The back and forth between the disciples. They're completely caught up in the physicality and the materiality of the moment. I think they've moved from like hungry to hangry you know, at this moment, right? <laughs> And what we're seeing is a, is a spiritual denseness that's rising up within the disciples. Their perception about Jesus is completely off kilter. There's two kinds of blindnesses that's being displayed for us in this passage. And I want to identify them for you because one actually leads to condemnation and one leads to growth by God's grace over time. There's a spiritual blindness that I want to call spiritual darkness. That's the Pharisees in this passage. Completely trapped, hardened in unbelief, resistant and hostile to Jesus. Nothing that Jesus could say would persuade them of who he is or to follow him or to trust in him. But then there is, as I'm going to call here, a spiritual denseness. And that's these disciples. These disciples struggle to understand Jesus. They bumble along all of the time, stumbling over themselves, trying to figure out what he's saying, but they believe in him. They follow him. They're, they've left everything to be his disciples. They're honest inquirers of the truth. They're open to his leadership, but they're fools a lot of the time. And such hope is for them. Such hope for those because those who are in spiritual darkness don't see at all. They're actually unwilling to see. And here's the scary part. They think they see. Which makes them the hardest people to reach. But the person who is spiritually dense knows that they're confused. Knows that they're lost. They see, but they see really poorly. They see the way Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. They see through a glass darkly. That's the disciples here, trusting Jesus, following Jesus, confused by Jesus. Like at this moment, anxious about bread when the bread of life is in the boat with them. That doesn't make much sense if you think about it. Here they are, want to get a nibble on the bread. Amazed by Jesus' sign. Wow, he fed 4,000 people. He did it again. And look at this. We've got dinner 
for weeks, right? Put it on the boat. Let's get out of here. You left it all behind. What are we going to do? How is the Lord going to provide? Right? That's their concerns. And the bread of life is sitting right next to him the whole time. You might think that he, if he has fed 5,000 people in Mark 6 and he feeds 4,000 people in Mark 8, that maybe he could take care of the 12 that are here in the boat. You see, you can actually get the, the facts of all of it together. The, the disciples had the facts all together. When Jesus probes them with those questions, he's like, do you understand? I'm not even talking about bread. Why are you discussing bread? This is not about bread. <laughs> this bread has always been a sign that points to me. I am the significance. Notice that word significance comes from the etymology of sign. I am the significance of the sign. The sign is merely a pointer. Don't get caught up on the sign. You don't stand at a sign and just look at it. You look at where the sign is pointing. The sign has been pointing to me, men. I want you to see me. It's not about the bread that you left behind. It's about the bread who's remaining with you. You may have forgotten the bread, disciples. But the bread of life has not forgotten you, disciples. The bread of life is right here with you. He's beside them. It's a remarkable picture of Jesus drawing us into the richness of what this sign actually signifies. That it is pointing to the fact that so often in our lives as we're crunching our checkbook numbers, we think to ourselves, down goes the ship. The Lord will never take care of us. There's no way out. We have strategized. We have created tactics. We have talked to the financial advisor. And there's no way that our daily bread will be provided for us. We are complaining about the fact that we have left the bread on the shore. And Jesus is right there with us the whole time. How much of our lives, no matter if it's finances or relationships or searching for a job as some of us are in this room, struggling in relationships, uh, battling difficulties and trials that rise up in our lives and we say to ourselves, there's just no way that we can get out of this. And we find ourselves riddled with anxiousness thinking about daily bread. And Jesus has said... Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There's a reason why those are the final words that fall off of the lips of Jesus at the end of Matthew. These disciples needed to hear that. And we disciples need to hear that. Do you believe that Jesus is with you? Do you believe he's, he's in your boat is he, and he's listening. Do you banter with other Cornerstone members, with your family, with your friends at work, at school? Banter about bread and why it's missing. And he's sitting there and he's saying, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of unbelief. Beware of losing sight of the bread of life. Of the one thing that you can always count on, which is not the bread, but the bread of life. The one who multiplied that bread. That's who you need. If you have him in the boat with you, you have all that you need. Do you believe that he's with you? Now let me ask you secondly, are you going to him? 
Are you going to him? It's one thing to say, yes, I believe he's there. Are you spending time with him? Are you sharing with him the things that are going on? Are you in faith believing that even as you ask them, they are yours in Jesus Christ? Do you believe that? That he is with you? You're going to him? Can you imagine an alternate ending to this story or maybe an alternate journey across the Sea of Galilee? Might be something like this. <laughs> the disciples realize. Man, we forgot the bread. Peter, you did it again, man. You totally messed up things. All we've got is one loaf. Hey, come on. Let's go take this to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, you're not going to believe this. We are fools. We completely left all of the bread on the seashore. But look here. Look. There's one loaf among us. There's no way that this loaf could provide for all of us. We're not the least bit worried because we've got you with us. Do you see how different that is? Do you see how fundamentally different that is? That, what turned was their frustration and anger, turns in almost to a moment of humor when the God who will make you laugh and provide is in the boat with you. Right? There's, the, there's the joy of the Lord. Now, he can do that and does do that. You know why? Because in the cross, he is wiping away every tear. He is ultimately assuaging everything that threatens you. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And to live is Christ and to die is gain. There, there's nothing to fear. There's nothing to fear. And he's calling us into the deep experience of that in the gospel. That he is wiping that away. You may say to yourself, well, Nate, I don't see that that clearly right now uh, in my life. Well, wait. He's there. Keep coming to him. I don't know if it'll be in this life that you'll have the answers. I, I don't know the story for your life. But I do know the end of it if you're in Christ. And when those clouds are rolled back and he comes back in his glory and you enter into the new heavens and the new earth, I know that whatever bread you're thinking about right now will be the least of your worries. The days for thinking about bread and worrying about the things of the world will be done as we stand in the glory of the risen, ascended, and returned Lord Jesus Christ. Are you with him? Are you going to him? Because he right now is coming to you. Father in heaven, we pray we would hear this truth. We believe it. And by your grace, we would walk according to it. Even now as we take the prayers that have been prepared for us to weave this truth by grace through the power of your spirit, back into our hearts. Father God, your steadfast love is better than life. And we pray that you would be our God and cause us to earnestly seek you and thirst for you. Father God, listen to the prayers of your people. Lord, hear our prayer. Lord Jesus, you are the one and only mediator between God and man. And you gave yourself as a ransom for all. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. We thank you for the reconciling work of the cross through your own blood. Help us in our unbelief. Lord Jesus, 
Listen to the prayers of your people. Lord, hear our prayer. Holy Spirit, our hearts yearn for you, and you tell us, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Draw us near to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need, and increase our faith. Holy Spirit, listen to the prayers of your people. Lord, hear our prayer.